And one day in 1996, I said, universe, God, what would be the best use of my talents? If you could use me for anything, what would it be? And the answer that came back was talk show host. And I thought, wow, well, I'm curious. Welcome to Create New Futures. Thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author, and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with pioneering leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Terence McNally. After 20 years as an actor, director, screenwriter, songwriter, and record producer, Terence refocused his work on his vision of working on creating a world that just might work. His experience and aspiration converged in his consulting and media work, as well as his role as co-founder of a startup which offers more people more ways to contribute to achieving the UN's sustainability development goals. As a speaker, writer, consultant, and coach, he helps foundation, public agencies, and progressive businesses communicate. His work enables individuals and organizations tell better stories and develop more compelling narratives. Today, we want to learn about the passion that drives his work, what led him to these opportunities, and the insights he developed by hosting on his podcast guests that include Michael Lewis, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Ariana Huffington, and other luminaries and pioneers. Terence, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Well, thank you, Avi. It's nice to be here. And it's, it's fun to be on this side, of the, uh, this, this side of the conversation. Great. Well, let's dive right in. And let me first ask you, when you reflect on all the facets of your current work, what do you enjoy the most and why? Well, I think I enjoy communicating, engaging with people. And it runs through every, pretty much everything I've done. Uh, when you talk about the work that I did in the entertainment industry, everything in the entertainment in, industry really is about that engagement and that interpersonal communication. And what I do now when I'm working with individuals or groups uh, on their storytelling and their narratives, when I do interviews in which as I've been doing since 96, which now seems like a very long time, I, I say that what I'm doing is I'm learning by teaching or teaching by learning. And that if I'm learning, then the, the listener is probably more likely to be learning. And I think it is just that engagement with other individuals that I would say the second thing is not just small talk, that basically everything that I do has a vision or uh, as much as possible has a vision 
why I coined that term, a world that just might work, a, a vision that admittedly we have challenges, we have problems, and everything that I'm doing is attempting to move us to solutions, solutions that we can find and engage in together. So it's, it's, it's engagement to make the world a better place. So we're going to rethread through a lot of what you already offered there, but to pick the first thread which you pointed to, which is learning by teaching and teaching by learning, which I've always felt is an important aspect of my life. So I'm curious how you experience learning by teaching. Is there a concrete example that comes to mind just from even recent days where you get to teach and learn through teaching, where you get to learn and teach through learning. Give me the, the sense of what that means for you for real. Well, for instance, and I won't go to one is recent days, but I'll go to what I think is one of the clearer examples of it, which is that I have uh, two different podcasts that I do. One is this a world that just might work, it looks at, you know, business, environment, health, science, politics, economics, all of that. The other one that came out of that one is the one that I do for a science institute at Harvard, the VICE Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering, a cutting edge biotech institute that emulates nature's principles to achieve breakthroughs. Now, I have almost no science background. In college, I shied away from it. I was, you know, it was, it was not, I, I wasn't that kind of guy, I thought. I took almost no science. We had to take one course. The course I took was the one on evolution, which I felt was about as soft a science as you could, as you could study. But I have found over the years, when people used to ask me, so what are your favorite interviews in my other interview world? And I would usually say the science ones. I had to learn more. Between you and me, you don't have to read everyone's whole book to interview them on that book. You read some of it, you get the gist, you read articles, you do, you know, the science books, I usually had to read all the way. And when I interviewed the founding director, Don Ingber, of the Vice Institute, I just said, I love what you guys are doing. I'd love to work with you. Next time I was in Boston, we sat down at a meeting with he and the head of operations. And I assumed that they might, if, if they were going to want to work, have me work with them, it would be to help their scientists tell their story, give them some communications work and so on. And they said, no, we'd like you to do a podcast. So doing a podcast about cutting edge science, I have to learn enough to have that intelligent conversation. And then my challenge is to make it so that a scientist a colleague of theirs would want to listen, that it would be rigorous enough for them. And yet, because I'm learning, as I said, as I'm doing it, it would be clear enough that anyone with, you know, a bit of an interest in the subject could understand it and be engaged and excited by it. And so I think that's one where it's just absolutely clear to me. I am teaching as I learn and learning as I teach. You were going to mention something from recent time, another example. Well, lately, uh, it turns out I've done, God, three or four of my most recent ones were on inequality. Emmanuel Sayers, the uh, wonderful economist from uh, UC Berkeley, Branko Milanovic, the economist who 
came up with the elephant curve of the distribution of wealth in the world. And then yesterday, uh, Robert Reich. I mean, that's a lot of heavyweight brain power there. And so I'm constantly having to stay alive to what's new in it and to understand it so that when we have a conversation, one thing, and, and I, I'm sure you'll resonate to this, I mean, is I don't want to get their stump speech. You know, as you know, book authors, and very often people want to do interviews, with the kind of folks that I'm interviewing want to do it when they've got a new book out. They're, they've got a book tour or whatever, and nowadays, of course, it's virtual, but over the last years, it became more and more virtual. They'll sit in the studio and do one after another after another. And you can tell when someone gets into their canned talk, and I want a conversation. So to do that, I've got to be, I've got to understand enough and be nimble enough to get through to them that this is not an interview where you just do what you did in the last five. This is one where we're going to probe a little around the edges. We're going to, you know, get, so, I mean, in, to that extent, any interview with someone who, I mean, they're giving you their time to put out the best ideas they've come up with lately, the best, their best explanation for what's going on. And if it's going to come alive for them, you've got to be up there with them. And so in, in all of those, and I will tell you one thing, and this may also be true for you, Avi, I find when I'm having conversations in my normal life about important issues, that I draw more on the interviews I've done than on anything that I read or see on television. If you know what I'm, when, when, when I'm thinking about, well, I will just say, well, I was talking to so-and-so or when I interviewed so-and-so. And, and, and that is an absolute indication to me that that's where I'm doing my learning. Beautiful. So in what you're describing there, I suppose you are painting what we are trying to do now, which is not come from anything that's complete and fashion, but skate to the edge of your experience where you can be formulating and discovering your own experience in a whole new light, which is a beautiful segue to ask you, how did you actually get to do this work you're doing today? If we're talking about that, I mean, there's, two, there's different strains to what I do. If we're talking about the podcast interview piece, that's one. And if we're talking about the story narrative piece, that's another. But I will tell you the crazy story of the interview piece. I had been in the entertainment industry, as you mentioned, for about 20 years. I'd done a little bit of everything, originally just acting, but then directing and producing and screenwriting and then producing music, all of which, again, the, the new taking on each of those new things is where I think you stay fresh. You keep having to learn new things and master new things to produce something that's valuable. Let's just, let's just stay there for a minute with, with this piece, if I may. In those 20 years in the entertainment, multifaceted expressions and opportunities, which of those roles that you played in front of the camera behind the camera or rather on the side of the camera or any other, did you again enjoy most and unleashed in you the, the most creativity and sense of, oh, maybe that's what I was, because what I'm interested in, my core inquiry in these conversations is how people 
discover who they are and what they are about and what they ought to become through their journey, how they stumble onto these insights. And that's what I'm asking about. Within the entertainment industry, acting in live theater is, you know, is just an amazing experience. In a good production with good direction and good other actors is an amazing experience. It's, it's you know, you create what we're talking about here, you know, in some ways even more so. You, you cannot, just as I, it's interesting because I hadn't thought about this before, but just as I don't want someone's stump speech, an audience doesn't want, and the work doesn't want your canned performance. They want it new every night. So acting live was amazingly enjoyable, but I will tell you the most, the thing that was the most fun where it combined the pulling from me what I was good at, challenging me and so on, was producing music. And I haven't done that much of it, but I produced a record that was, uh, I produced an EP in 1985, yeah, that was actually the number four critics, uh, the number four ranked EP, that's extended play, that's not a full, that's a shorter form of of an album. In the Village Voice Music Critics poll, it was the number four EP of the year in 1985, which is amazing. That is the music critic, that was the music critics poll of all. And what it was, was it was classic novelty songs. They were humorous songs, they had stories in them, but my goal was that the music would be as good, if you just got it as straight music, you'd go, that's good music, but it also had this humor in it and so on. But what I would say when, when I ask myself, why is that the most enjoyable, is that if you have a bad day writing, you've got nothing, really. If you've got a bad day directing, it's nothing but frustrating. Music is music. In other words, even a bad take, even a take where you go, no, we got to do that again, it's still music. And there was something also, as someone who played guitar a little bit when I was young, but don't play a musical instrument, to have those extensions, to have world-class musicians, which in Los Angeles you can have. And I go, I hear it this way. Can you try this and have a guitarist, a saxophonist, a keyboard player tap into their skill? The, the, you know, Marshall McLuhan talks about extensions, are extensions of ourselves. Having those musicians as extensions of my musical vision was phenomenal. I produced this, that one EP and some other records. That was, there, there was nothing but fun. So then catch the arc of time and your journey from there to what you discovered as your calling and your vision. So there was a period of time when uh, I would try to get to, there's a, there's a place in Los Angeles, which is in, in Los Angeles County in Malibu, that is my favorite spot in this area. And it's Point Doom. And uh, Point Doom is cliffs overlooking the ocean. As I would say to myself, it's where I could be in LA and think I was in Hawaii. But I would, every other Sunday or so, go for sunset, climb this hill and look over the cliffs and talk to God and the ocean and so on. And, and, and that, was, that was how I, you know, that was my church. And one day in 1996, I said, universe, God, what would be the best use of my talents? If you could use me for anything, what would it be? 
And the answer that came back was talk show host. And I thought, wow, well, I'm curious. I love to learn. I love to communicate. I love to engage. I'm comfortable in front of a camera. I'm comfortable behind a camera, behind a mic. I went, this sort of makes sense. Now, here's what Aviv was interesting. Within two weeks, I heard a radio show on a station in L.A. hosted by a friend of mine who was a stand-up comic doing kind of an interview show, uh, an audience uh, phone show. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Within two weeks after that, I ran into him. I said, I hear your sh I heard your show and you have a co-host. Can I co-host? He said, next week you can co-host. Next week I co-host. Two, within two weeks, he gets a gig where he can no longer host the show and he gives it to me. Six wow. weeks from sitting, from standing on Point Doom to having my own interview radio show. Now, I also say that I wish I'd been more specific when I was talking to God and said, can we make it a national show? Can we make it a television show? Can we replace Charlie Rose? But in any case, took me from that's, you know, from this message to actually doing it in six weeks. And that was in 96 and I've been doing it ever since. And so the, the idea of um, a world that just may work, explain how that came into focus and what that meant for you. Well, one day when I was just sort of trying to describe what I wanted to talk about, what I wanted the show to be about, that phrase came to me. And I liked it right away, but I liked it even more the more I thought about it, because it, it is kind of a variation on other people say, well, why don't you just say a world that works for everybody or a world that, you know, and the reason is, if you'll notice in a world that just might work, there's the subjunctive case, the maybe, the possibility, but it's not, it's not a given. It's not guaranteed. It's not done. It is unfolding. And if we do the right thing, if we come together, then it can work. Um, so that's what it means to me is, is this potential that's not given, but demands of us that we pursue that kind of a vision. And then in terms of what it means, I think that a world that just might work is likely to, I often think that the way that the um, conventional Western thinking as practiced in business and politics, et cetera, in, in, in our society, there's a way in which reality is sort of dead. That is, it's complete, it's static. It's separate. And I mean, it's, it's those things. And what I say is no, it is a reality is alive. It is interdependent and it is dynamic. And that world that just might work is one where we recognize that and we live in that way. And what it means is that you make decisions with a view of the bigger picture, the longer term view, the ripple effects of what you do, the relationships, the dynamic relationships and interdependence of everything. And so whether I'm talking to and I'm taking the message of world that just might work and putting it more into this when I'm doing the interviews, but that's what I'm looking for is how can we make, you know, how can we tap into that kind of a vision, that kind of a worldview 
and actually begin to practice that in our business, in our politics, in our relationships, in our organizations. You're describing a picture of the world, of the universe, one that's emergent and exactly. one that unfolds and reveals itself rather than a fixed kind of a universe. And this is curious because we are recording this at the end of March when you are and I am in some kind of a self-isolation at home during the um, rapidly developing coronavirus uh, crisis. And one of my morning contemplations today centered on this idea that, because I like to ask about the meaning of things and how we make meaning. And this is the first in a very long time, perhaps ever, that we are experiencing a global event in such a way all at the same time, all across this beautiful planet. And the thought that occurred to me was that it, it is truly challenging the two or three or 400 years, the, the kind of the, the paradigm that appeared through the scientific revolution and then into the industrial and technological revolution that in many ways offered us the, the idea, the premise that we humans were going to be able to master nature and control nature. And here we are, we are dealing with something we don't fully understand that seem to have a transmitting power broader than we imagined and faster than and greater than, than we anticipated and were prepared for, even though there were those that prepared us uh, for it for years. And all of it is, is occurring here and now. So first of all, is there anything that this triggers for you that you'd like to, to offer? But then I'll, I'll circle back to your journey. Well, the first thing is that there's a lot of ways in which I see that the things that came out of the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution and so on, and uh, I'd say uh, accelerated in the 20th century, even through the powers that we derived through technology, um, whether the power of nuclear power and that sort of thing, or the power of computing that gave us so much greater ability to, to deal with information and so on, was built on, as you say, that paradigm, a reductive paradigm of breaking things into its pieces, putting things together in the way we want. And it seems to me that to some extent, while that, that has given us now the power, but I, I'm going to talk about the power first and then the threat, the power to do things and un, even I mean, understand isn't quite the right word, but figure out how things work in a way that we never could. But I think at this point, we can see, and not just from the, the pandemic, but from climate change, from inequalities in the world and so on, that we've kind of burned through that method. Those extensions of ourselves that we, that we created through our mastery of technology now has revealed to us the limits of that approach. And so now we've got to change the software in our minds to actually 
master our own tendencies because the software that we had did, it hasn't clearly hasn't in, it's enabled us to perform amazing things, but not to actually do it in a way in sync with nature or even really in sync with each other. The pandemic, again, would not be the pandemic it is without globalization, without airplane travel. In 1918, we did have a pandemic that killed 50 million people. And I don't think people say that enough. I mean, I, I think most people, they go, oh, it's just the flu. Well, the flu at one point killed 50 million people in a year or two. And what that did was that simulated today's globalization because of World War I. Had it not been for World War I, that probably would have been a very different pandemic. But this one is nature does what it does, things mutate, things emerge, and then globalization has created the rapid spread and, and increase the threat. So that's the first thing that occurs to me is that our power creates both solutions and problems to some extent that now we've got to, the, the real work, I'll, I'll make a quick jump. I mean, my 20th college reunion, I remember making a speech to, to my class. I was the uh, Harvard class of 1969, which is the class that struck the university against the war and so on. Quite a famous class. We were the sort of the peak of the 60s. And in 1989, the 20th reunion, I said, you know, how are we living up to our youthful ideals? And I said, it sounds like I'm talking about envir environment. And you might say, well, which area of the environment is most important? And I said, our consciousness. That is the one. It is curious that in recent days you've had more world figures, more world leaders, and more people that used to speak with tremendous sense of authority and confidence use the three words, I don't know, or we don't know. So one lesson we are learning here is a lesson of humility. Yeah. And, and perhaps with all the, the wonders that modernity and science and, and such brought to us, perhaps there is a lesson of humility we, we are called to uh, internalize through this time. The other startling thing, I, I just wrote something and probably will publish it in, in the next few days, and one of my observations says that never in the history of um, organic life has, have you had a situation where a species needed to change its behavioral code in such a short time? And we just have. So there is something to be said about the beautiful and powerful agile and adaptive capacity of consciousness in terms of how it rewrites the algorithmic code by which we operate and behave because we all of a sudden needed to learn to stay away from each other and to um, self-isolate and so on. So, so let me trace back to how let you... Me one, let me say one other thing that fits with what you were saying, which is that we have been saying for years or we have known for years that we need some radical changes if we're going to actually uh, effectively confront climate change. And we've been slow to act for the most part. 
um, sort of saying, well, we can't do that. We, you, you know, what that would take, we can't achieve. And in some sense, this pandemic, because of the immediacy, makes us change in the way that I think will uh, equip us more to realize we are, as you pointed out, more agile than we thought we were. And this rapid onslaught of a threat may equip us better to take on the slowly unfolding threat of climate change. That would be a silver lining. Indeed, the developmental and evolutionary thought here is what other profound changes are in latency and potential for us humans if and when we realize we must make these changes? And can we proactively unleash some of those changes rather than be triggered by fear and panic. Or make them at the point where you have no good options, where you have painted yourself into a corner because of the way you've waited, some of which we're seeing, you know, just the difference between how different countries are responding to this one. Yes, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a good segue to ask you, so what was the nature of your collaboration with the United Nations and, and that initiative and, how, uh, and what have you learned through that experience? Well, what we're, one thing I've learned is I uh, hadn't been involved, I didn't think of myself as having been involved in startups. I have because when you do a freelance career, which is essentially what I did in the entertainment industry and what I've done ever since as a consultant, a speaker, a radio, you know, so much of it, that it's startup after startup after startup. I started a record company. I, you know, all those sorts of things, but I still sort of didn't think I was. So this was, this has been an experience of working with a couple of other people to develop something new. And one thing that, that I've seen is that events, happen, you have to shift, you have to pivot, all of that stuff, you know, that everyone knows. But an, an initial sort of image of how, what would be a good way to get people to, the UN has sustainable development goals, and they basically encompass just about everything, you know, housing, food, waste, energy, all of those sorts of things. But how could we help them get in people's consciousness? And how could we, I, I do believe and uh, any of your business listeners, I'm sure, agree that the more concrete you can make your goals, the more clear you can make your metrics, all of that kind of stuff. So I like the idea of choosing some goals and then saying, how can we help towards people getting involved in recognizing and achieving them? And that particular project has morphed many times. Uh, I'll just tell you briefly what it is right now. It, it, right now, it is something we call the People's Prize, and it is we raise money from sponsors, either foundations or corporations. That creates a prize pool. We then they they choose a goal. Okay, this is going to be homelessness, which will fit under the shelter goal, or hunger, which would fit right. They choose the goal, and the uh, they put a certain amount of money. Then. We will, uh, we will run competitions in which we'll have some experts choose three or four innovative social enterprises or, or businesses, either, that can be either way, that will then compete by 
We'll help them develop content that will help them compete under a certain period of time, six weeks, let's say, to let the public decide, the crowd decide which of those innovations gets 50% of the prize money, which gets 30, which gets 20. The top three will divide. So they everything they raise themselves from the crowd, everything the crowd donates to them, they keep, but then they split this prize. So the, our goal is to tap into gamification and competition and crowdfunding, but in a way that, uh, that, that puts front and center achieving these worthwhile goals. And you also teach storytelling. You help teams and organizations and foundations create compelling narratives. What must we appreciate? What must we understand about the process of creating a compelling narrative? First thing I will say is that I offer a distinction between, in, in my, in my, even in my, my sort of signature talk, tapping the unique power of story and narrative, I use them both, right? Story and narrative. And then I said, well, is there a difference between story and narrative? Now, I don't think you could get agreement necessarily in the English departments around the country about that. But the one that I've come up with, which is helpful uh, for clients, is a story has a beginning, middle, and end. A narrative has a past, present, and future. So your narrative will be populated by your stories. So a compelling narrative has traces this past, present, and this future in a way that you want to tap into what's meaningful about your stories, what's meaningful about your evolution as an organization or a program or a company, but leaves this future to the listener, the reader, you know, whoever, if you, if you were developing a narrative because you wanted to motivate your staff, it would be that they would have a clear role to play in this unfolding future. If you were trying to, you know, build an organization, all of those, if you're trying to get customers, you want them to. So I think when I think of narrative, it's that it, it taps into the meaningful steps. You, you, you have to do a lot of homework to figure out what, are, what is that thread. But the most wonderful thing I think about a narrative is that open-ended unfoldingness that leaves both the invitation and the challenge to the person on the other end of that narrative. Whereas the stories, you usually choose a wonderful member of your company, your organization, a wonderful client, and good things happen. You, you got, I use the, the age-old model of the story, which is you got a protagonist, they're in a world, life is going on, there's an inciting incident, sets them in pursuit of a goal, overcome the obstacles, achieve the goal, learn the lesson. That's the story. The narrative, your narrative as a company, for instance, would have a number of stories. And what you'd want to make sure is that those stories you tell about your company, your organization are in sync with this narrative you tell about who you've been, who you are and where you're going. It's the evolving lattice work of the bridging we make from who we were in the past to who we are becoming in the future. We, we live in the present without a way of honoring and appreciating our shared past, we are devoid of meaning, without a way of shaping an emerging future, we are devoid of possibility and hope. And 
narrative is the fashioning the, the narrative is the way to pull those energies into something that has a propulsion and energy that's forward going. And, and one of the often say that I, I talk about even seeing and speaking in narrative, because I said one thing that narrative has, and it's sort of true of story as well, is it's almost always really dependent on relationships and actions have consequences. And I think when people begin to see their world in narratives, which we do accidentally with our families sort of and our, you know, but we, but we may not do it as much in our work, then we're, if that kind of seeing makes us more attuned to relationships and to the consequences and the dynamics of things, I think that's inherent in story and narrative. And I think when we see that way and express ourselves that way, I, I think we're more potent. Wow. So, yes. So by, can you give an example there of a person or a team or an organization where you've worked with them on developing a compelling narrative where it forced you as, as the facilitator, as the, as the coach, A, into new learning yourself, and B, made you need to find courage in the way you were challenged, in the way you challenged them. In, in the, because what I hear in this, in the way you talk of narrative, first of all, it's, it's the composition of many stories. Second of all, it's the composition of many stories told by different people involved in that evolving narrative. So there is an emergence that, that's taking place. Is, is there any example, any, anything you can share? And, and you might tell, well, it's, it's all confidential with the client, but I'm, I'm curious if there is anything you'd share. I'm going to confess, Aviv. <laughs> I can't. And right off the top of my head, I mean, I think as I was listening to that, that, that question, it was like, okay, so we had to do it. And then the courage, it was just got, I don't know that I can at this moment but one of the reasons is what my experience has been is that most of the organizations i work with they aren't willing to go that deep mm. that most of them want a talk they want four talks they want a series of brief interventions i've found while i say that i will help them that is not what most of them are willing to ask. And when I've spoken to my friends who do similar work, colleagues who teach story and narrative, they say the same thing. Uh, one of them made a point, a, a good friend of mine, Andy Goodman, who's really uh, excellent in all of this area. He actually set a goal one year that he was going to focus on, I want four big clients who I will work with them for the year. and he found, A, there weren't many that wanted to take him up on it, even though he had great credibility and had great success in shorter engagements. And even the ones that did, he said, maybe one of them actually was willing to do that hard work. I'm sorry. To, I mean, I wish I had something better to say. I do most of my work over uh, nine to 12 months with a group of executive teams. And most of it is profoundly transformational. 
So, and extraordinarily lucrative. So it can be done. Well, a conversation to be had offline, I believe. Yes. <laughs> um, let's get back to your podcast. What do you consider a successful or fulfilling or enriching episode? I, I think you already said that it's one where you, you learn and, and through your own learning, you teach. What else would you say first? And then I'll ask about some of the most memorable interviews you, you've had on your podcast. Well, I think, I think it's, it's those two things you said. I mean, the, the quality of aliveness that, that somehow, despite the fact that in so many cases, uh, because uh, those, those names you mentioned at the top, I really do, most of my guests are fairly prominent. They're, they're best-selling authors. They're leaders of organizations and so on. They get interviewed a lot. And so part of it is just that thing of being able to get through to them and have that conversation have an aliveness to it. That's obviously one of the biggest. I think the other is where they say, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Let me... That's a new, I mean, and I, I will tell you just one person who jumps to mind, Cornell West, who is a, a very acerbic, very, very smart black professor and critic of society and so on. I, I mean, anyone who is somewhat familiar with him, he's quite phenomenal in even his, the manner of his expression. He's, he's so stylized. And I assumed from what I'd seen of him, big ego you know, needs to run the show. More than anyone I've ever interviewed, he was the one who said, and he uses that, he uses this thing of brother. He would say, brother Aviv, he uses kind of this old Christian sort of brother kind of thing. Brother Aviv, you're making me think. Brother Aviv, I hadn't thought of that. That's a new, I mean, it was phenomenal that someone who seemed so complete was actually so open. But that's one thing. Uh, yeah. um, I remember Matt Ridley, who who was the uh, editor of The Economist for a while and, and has written some amazing books on the genome and science and so on. He was also someone that we began to talk about. We were talking about the evolution of intelligence. And in the course of the conversation, it was like we sort of pushed the boundaries, as you referred to earlier, where he was going, wow, well, you know, I and it's, it's those kind of moments are really exciting for me. Well, so let me ask you this. If you could choose anyone, live or dead, <laughs> uh, who are three people that you'd love to interview? And what is the question you'd love to ask each of those three in this special interview, live or dead? <laughs> you can think about this out loud, please. Okay, now I wish I'd prepared this question, but you know, okay, so the first two, uh, first of all, let me tell you, by the way, that in living, one of the people I most enjoy interviewing is Michael Lewis. Hmm. He is not only a phenomenal bestseller, but, you know, Ira Glass and Malcolm Gladwell both say he's their favorite contemporary storyteller. <laughs> which is outrageous when you think about it. But he is, his work is so fascinating. And he is willing to talk about the process of his work and the findings. And 
he's sort of he's just like a dream interview. Not only that, but twice when uh, I've interviewed him in Los Angeles in a radio studio, he has brought his daughter with him down from Berkeley. And once she was five years old and once she was seven and she's sitting in the studio with us. And there was just something so charming to me about that. You know, we think of him as Michael Lewis, this big star, but such a human person. When I think about Living or Dead, the two names that first came up to me, and it just shows I'm American-centric, I guess, because I didn't go back to ancient history. The first two that came up to me were Mark Twain and Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. And uh, Abraham Lincoln, I think, for obvious reasons. His line about the better angels of our nature, I find myself you know, drawn to so often over the last few years when it seems like we, ha- we are not listening to our better angels in so many ways, uh, you know, inequality, you know, people who are not necessarily evil or venal or corrupt are part of a system that is just not working for all of us. And I would love to engage with Abraham Lincoln about how do we tap the better angels and then just to find out what was it, what was it like to go from where he started as, you know, a rail splitter and a basically poverty stricken, you know, politician in a small, you know, to where he was in the White House, um, that personal journey, and then just how he dealt with the cataclysms in, you know, that he dealt with. Uh, I yes. mean, if you, you know, we, we learned it in history books, but to think about being the president who is president when your actions in a way help start the civil war, if you think about it, right? If he lets everything go as long as it's going, there probably is no civil war. So you are taking on that kind of a, you're, you know, that responsibility and then to, to, to ride through it. I, I once asked Doris Kearns Goodwin when, when we were talking about her book, Team of Rivals, were we even better off just letting the South secede? If they wanted to stay in the past and be an, agri- an agrarian society that depended on slavery, uh, so be it. We're going into the future. You know, we'll, we'll see you later. And, and she said, no. She said, what you can't realize is that the dream of a society, a system built on ideals, at which the U.S. was the first that was, was only, wasn't very old at that point. Yeah. 1789 to 1960, I mean to 1860, that's only 71 years. He felt he had to preserve that a society built on ideals and ideas could exist, whatever it took. Lincoln would be one. Twain would be just because he saw so much and did it so humorously. So what would you ask Twain? I have a feeling I'd uh, I'd sit back and let him do almost all the talking. (laughs) You know, I mean, I just say, so, um, you know, what do you think of this or that? What do you, you know, I mean, what would be amazing? I mean, you know, if you can imagine his humor and his perceptiveness. If you could bring him into today and say, so what do you think of the Internet? What do you think of Amazon? What do you think of Trump? What do you think of all these different things? I just think it would be a perspective that would have both that wisdom and humor, which makes life tolerable. Delicious.
Now I wait. I think it would probably be some some of the the, the women that I'm not thinking of one right at this moment, but someone who who just broke a path and just what that was like. Because again, I, just as I say, I can't imagine what it'd been like to be in Lincoln's shoes. To I know I have difficulty imagining what it's like to be in any woman's shoes and to be in a woman who was a suffragette or who was the first to do this, the first to do that, to get an insight into what that was like would be would be uh, incredibly powerful so we're going to leave this as a as a space for for further um inquiry for anybody listening who would they want to be sitting at the dinner table with and what question would they ask that sometime is a process i lead with the groups of people just to uh, go deeper and change the nature of the conversation so for people seeking Terence, to enter entertainment today. What are some of the most critical competencies, character virtues, and focusing practices must they develop, that you recommend that they must develop? Aviv, I think the entertainment industry has changed so much. It would be a completely, I mean, it would just be such a completely different set of skills now. But the thing I would say is that what, even what I saw when I was in the entertainment industry, which was basically from say 77 to 97, 70, you know, that, that area, 77 to 2000, 75 to 2000. Even then I saw that unless you were extremely lucky, that you had to create your own, your own media, your own vehicles and so on. When I was merely acting and was waiting for someone to call me and was waiting for there to be an audition that I could go on and prove myself and so on, there's a difficulty in that, the passivity of that. Mm-hmm. That's really hard to deal with unless that's your personality. And when I started producing music and producing records and then videos, I mean, I will say this, uh, that there was a point at which I had a absolutely clear vision that if my, it, it was my wife at the time, my, my first wife, if we could produce records that were good and popular that then we could, of course, do music videos in the very early days of music videos, 83, 84, 82. Then we could probably get a movie deal and so on. And it was just, I could see how these things would lead. And in fact, that all happened. I would tell young people, do stand-up, do improv, write. Well, now that has become almost what entertainment is. In other words, the people that make their breakthrough on YouTube, the people that make their breakthrough on Instagram and so on. It's that the thing I would say is you want to have, you know, the prerequisites that were always there, which is that you have to care about story. You have to care about people. You have to be observant. You have to have that curiosity and that observation. And then you have to have something to say. That has always been there. But now the ability to initiate on your own And I would say, find partners. Don't do it alone. So all those skills that have always been there, plus the initiative and the creativity to create your own stories, your own 
podcast, your own whatever it is, now more possible than ever. While there's a million people in the pool, the pool is available. But then find partners, find teammates. You will be better. And one thing that I always say about collaboration is work is the boss. That it's not what I think the best way to do that scene is or the way you think. You, if you really are in tune and, and not letting your ego fight, the work will tell you what's needed. And so you want teams that are able to work that way. And that, you know, now here's one thing I would say. Even if you don't make it, if you're creating your own stuff and you're working with good teammates and you're <laughs> pushing yourself, you go back to what we said, I think, really early starting this conversation is that will be that will that will there will be fulfillment in that. There will be discovery in that. If you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or only two capabilities or only two practices, what would you keep? Well, one would be listening, observing, curiosity, whatever that gestalt is. The other is energy. And I don't know quite how to say that, but energy. The difference between inertia. Now, it's interesting because I was going to say between inertia and motion is, you know, is a world. But I don't want to be saying be busy because stillness is not inertia. Stillness is a necessary starting point. And just as I said it, I saw that image. You drop a rock in a still pool. The ripples happen. It wouldn't happen without the stillness. In a, in a rushing river, those ripples don't happen. But those ripples are, you know, are what you're sending into the world. So maybe I'd say three things, an ability to be still, an ability to be curious, and an ability to be, to take your human energy and use it as fuel. To presence make, to energy make. Yes. Well, thank you, Ter Terence, uh, for this uh, fascinating exploration today. As we bring this to landing, what parting wisdom do you wish to offer to people listening to create new futures? Well, I'd say if you can, and I think you probably can, see yourself as part of something bigger than yourself. That thing that I said earlier on about big picture, long-term view, see if you can come from that kind of a feeling. One of the things that I often think is that the biggest shift we need is to enlarge our circle of concern. That for many of us, it's us, it's us and our family, it's us and our company. I think if you can come from a larger circle of concern than that, see the world in a bigger way, see your role in the world in a bigger way, you, you, work is still going to be work, you know, relationships are still going to be relationships. But if you can feel yourself as, as your place in the world has, starts from that place and it's on a path that has that scope to it. I, I, I just think I, I'd like to be with people who 
see their role in the world that way and work with people who see their role in the world that way. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.